0: I don't know if you have ever been with someone, as I have on a number of occasions, someone who has just lost a loved one or experienced a deep and profound loss, who, while talking with you and sharing with you, uh, has started to cry, started to weep, who then has apologized crying. I'm sorry, they say. I'm sorry for my tears. What, what is it that makes people apologize for grieving? I cannot speak for others, but we particularly, we white Americans, at least of New England descent and conservative, Theological Christian backgrounds, okay, I'm narrowing it down to me and uh, Gaylene. Um, We often feel uncomfortable with emotions. We often tend to think of grief as a sign of weakness and fear and perhaps even doubt. Imagine that you're at a funeral. For a child where a, the family is weeping, the family is sobbing, the family is even wailing its grief. And they're crying out loudly, oh Lord, oh God, why have you let this happen? And then you go to another funeral for another child where the family is calm. Their demeanor is serene, their words are all about God's strength and God's sovereignty and about seeing their child in heaven one day. And their tears, if they have any tears, are of the misty-eyed sort. They are a teardrop or two, the quiet kind of tear. My question is, which family is stronger in faith? Or to ask the question differently, which is grieving well? Don't be too sure that you know the answer. For indeed it is very difficult to know which is grieving well. Because grief is a complex thing. Lament and bereavement and loss are complicated profoundly deep experiences. As we, as we move along in our series through the Psalms, we come in this 18-part series to Psalm 22. Many of you will recognize this psalm as a, what we call a messianic psalm. It is a psalm ultimately, as we're going to see, about the Messiah the Savior, the coming Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and that is good that we recognize this is a messianic psalm. But before, it was a psalm about Jesus. It was a song and psalm written by and written about another person. It is an anguished lament about pain and loss. This is is a lament psalm. In which an ancient child of God, most likely David, releases pent-up grief in a torrent of anguish and sorrow. It's, it is an example of which there are many in scriptures in which godly saints are brutally honest about their anguish. And they sob and they, they pour out wrenching, throbbing tears In the midst of a wicked and wearisome world. I wonder if we have room for that in our life of faith. I wonder if we have room for that in our experience of Christ. I I want us to make sure that we have room for this because our world is still wicked and wearisome. It is still just as broken as it was way back then. So we need to know, we need to learn how to grieve. We need to learn how to lament. And I want us to explore that from this text this morning. Here's here's what we're going to see. We're going to see first the darkness that leads to lament. We're going to look at some light bursts that interrupt our lament. We're going to look at the dawn. That follows the darkness. And then we're going to look at the lament that ends all other laments. We need to learn to lament. Here's brothers, sisters, friends. Here's here's the point of this text in my message this morning. We need to learn to lament in hope until because of Jesus... Lamentation is no more. We need to learn to lament in hope until, because of Jesus, lamentation, that is grief and mourning, are no more. Let's, let's explore this. Let's, by God's grace, not just explore it. Let's, let's hear his voice in the deep places of our hearts today. First of all, let's look at the darkness that leads to lament. These are reasons, these are circumstances that lead us as human beings to to weep, to wail, to cry, to lament. David the psalmist experiences uh, three broad categories. He felt forsaken by God, he felt persecuted by others, and he felt broken and damaged in his own body and in his own spirit. First of all, he felt forsaken by God. Verses 1 and 2, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day and you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. David is groaning here in his afflictions because it feels as if God has abandoned him. David interprets God's silence as distance and God's seeming unresponsiveness to his trials as abandonment. God, you have forsaken me. God, you have abandoned me. God, you're not listening. God, you don't care. God, you are not there. Isn't that the ultimate sorrow that we experience? Other sorrows and afflictions are indeed afflictions, and they grieve us and they burden us, but the ultimate sorrow is that while we're in the midst of those afflictions, it seems as if God isn't there and God doesn't care. God doesn't listen. I know I'm tempted to despair. I'm tempted to feel what David is feeling here. When, for example, I pray for something that is really good and it's worth praying for, and I pray for it over and over and over again, day after day, week after week, year after year, decade after decade in some cases, and God doesn't respond. It feels, Lord, are you even there? Lord, do you care? I, I feel tempted to feel abandoned by God when people do me wrong and nothing happens to them. I feel tempted to, be that, to feel abandoned by God when God just seems to let stuff happen in this world without, without doing anything to stop it. Can, can you feel that? Do, have you been there? Have you prayed only to hear nothing in return? Have you, have you longed for change, for God to intervene, for God to do something, only for Him to be silent, only for Him apparently to be not doing anything at all? When, when we live life in the dark and when we live life deeper and deeper into the dark and the nighttime just seems to go on and on and on and the darkness continues, it feels as if there's nobody beside us. Feel like we're forsaken by God. David felt that. David was experiencing that. David felt forsaken by God. He also was persecuted by others. As we run down through this psalm, we see that this persecution took at least four primary forms. First of all, people mocked his identity and his worth. They mocked him. And demeaned him. Look at verse 6. I, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. David says others were demeaning him and degrading him in such a way that he no longer felt like a human being. He felt like a worm. He felt worthless. He felt, he felt like he was nothing. People do this all the time in our world. They bully, they mock the worth of others, they mock our looks, they mock our color, they mock our ethnicity, our intelligence, our education, our class. They, they degrade us with vulgar slurs and vile abuse and caustic words and dehumanizing attitudes and actions and all their words and all their looks and all their actions say worm. Worm. They treat us and they treat others as less than fully human. Those who have been made in the image of God. And this is a great sorrow. This is a deep affliction. People were mocking his identity, and his worth. They were also mocking his faith. Look at verses 7 and 8. All who seek me, see me, mock me. They, they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. They say he trusts in the Lord. Let him, let the Lord deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Do you hear the tone of mockery here? People were looking on at David and just saying, oh, he's one of those religious guys. He's one of those guys who trust in the Lord. He's looking to the Lord to deliver him. Yet look at his life. His life is a mess. His life is afflicted. Where is his God? You ever had that happen? You're one of those people who trust in the Lord, and yet you suffer like everybody else does. Where's your God? People were mocking his faith and mocking his God. They they mocked his worth. They mocked his faith. And then in addition to that, on top of that, they shamed him and embarrassed him. Look at verses 17 and 18. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. Folks, the the point of this is not so much that they gambled to see who would get his clothes. The point of this is that they had taken his clothes off. The point of this is that they had exposed him to open shame. The point of this is that they had made him naked. This is David's way of saying They have shamed me in public. They have violated my privacy, my dignity, my honor. They have violated decency. They have stripped me of my dignity. They have stripped me of my privacy, my secret self, my private space has been invaded. I've I've been exposed, embarrassed, shamed. What might this look like in our own lives? Someone may know and expose a secret of our past. Someone may call attention to our weaknesses and to our vulnerabilities. Someone may mock us at the point of where we feel most exposed and most, just most naked. David says they mock my worth. They mock my faith. They embarrass and they shame me. And then he adds one more to it. People ganged up on him and left him no way of escape. They ganged up on him. Look at verse 12. Verse 12. Many bulls Encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. And then down in verse 16. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. Folks, what David is saying here is that he is being ganged up on. What he's saying here is that this is a kind of mob attack, mob assault, mob persecution. And by saying that they encircle him, what he's saying is is that there's no way to escape. I am surrounded by it. I am surrounded by people and afflictions and sorrows that are hemming me in. There's no way out. As a seventh grader, I remember experiencing this. I had a kind of challenging junior high. I grew about eight, eight inches in a year. And all the weirdness that comes with that, awkward, clumsy, gawky, stumbling, bumbling, young kid, To go with it, I had a pimple problem so bad that the kids at school used to call me pizza face. And then every day for months, as I would go to school, there was this gang of kids who would look for opportunities to surround me in the hallways and push me and shove me and mocked me, and there was no escape. There's no way out. As I read this, I remember that. I remember it all so clearly. I remember just feeling helpless. I remember feeling surrounded. I f- remember feeling hemmed in. You know the feeling? It may not be people. maybe may be circumstances. It may feel demonic. It may feel like it's hell attacking you and demons attacking you, but you're surrounded and and the tempter and the accuser and the shamer of hell, the devil himself is just encircling you and and you feel like there's no way out. David says, I, f- I feel like I've been forsaken by God and I am being persecuted by others. And then he adds, i I am afflicted in mind and spirit and body. Look at verses 14 and 15. I am poured out like water and my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted with, within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. This is the language of acute, physical, probably psychological trauma and affliction. David was coming apart. David was losing it physically. He was losing it psychologically. He was melting away under the heat of affliction. There is a darkness that leads to lament. It is in those seasons of our lives where we feel forsaken by God. The seasons when we are persecuted by others. Those seasons when we are afflicted in mind in spirit and in body. And my friends, it doesn't do any good to deny the grief. It doesn't do any good. We don't see David deny the grief. We don't see David force a smile. We don't see David fake a smile. We don't see David make believe that everything is okay. No, he pours out his heart in anguish. He pours out his heart. He laments. He laments. And yet we as Christians all too often force and fake the smile while deep inside we're grieving and we're broken in heart. Remember years ago when we lived in Jersey there was a a number of senior citizen retirement villages in our community, tens of thousands of of retirees settled in. And there was this one retirement village that boasted and flaunted its philosophy on on its entry sign. It said, now is the time of your life to have the time of your life. And so they tried. We knew people who lived there and we heard stories of of seniors by the busloads every day going down to Atlantic City and just just having the time of their life. And when they weren't going to Atlantic City, they were having big parties in the clubhouses, and there were live-in arrangements by the hundreds in these villages, and there was drinking aplenty going on. And I remember one time talking with a resident there who said to me, quote, I live among people who party and gamble and have the time of their lives during the day, but then they go home and cry. But then they go home and cry. Trying to to heal human sorrow with noise and tickles and smiles and, and fun and laughter, but at the end of the day, when we, when we are left alone with ourselves, what do we feel? What do we feel? You know, there are 150 psalms. More than 75 of them are lament psalms. Over half of the psalms are about sorrow. And nearly 90 of them are about either sorrow or suffering. That says to me, my friends, that says to me that sorrow, suffering, and lament are normal parts of the Christian life. They are normal, acceptable parts of the Christian life. We need to see this for our own sakes and for the sakes of our brothers and sisters in the Lord. You know how many times in the Psalms, the psalmists cry out, Things like, how many are my foes? How long will I suffer? How long will you forget, O Lord? How long will you look on as evil prevails? How long will my enemies scoff at me? How long will you be angry with us, O Lord? Why have you broken down our walls? Why do you hide your face from me? Will you spurn us forever? Will you never again be favorable to us? Are your promises at an end? Have you forgotten to be gracious? Oh, when will you come to me? How great are my troubles? How many are my tears? Why do you stand far away? Why do you cast us off forever? Time and time again, those kind of cries come from men of faith, the Davids of ancient time. Do they come from us? This isn't just Old Testament. We all know, do we not, that when Jesus was in the presence of death, the death of his friend Lazarus, says simply, Jesus wept. He wept. And the language is not the language of teardrop weeping. It's the language of sobbing tears. Paul the Apostle says that we groan. As believers, we groan. Longing for the redemption of our bodies. Jesus on the cross says, why? And Jesus on another time says, how long, O Lord? How long, O oh Lord? We, we need to understand that the godly have always wept. That tears are part of the journey. That tears are part of the reality that we face. There is a darkness that leads to lament, and we need to let it lead to lament. Don't ever be apologetic for your tears. Let them flow whenever the need is felt. Let them flow. Sob freely. Grieve deeply. Mourn deeply. For ours is a broken world and ours are broken hearts. There is a a darkness that leads to lament, but we need to notice the burst of light, the light bursts that interrupt the darkness, that interrupt the night, that interrupt our lament. Psalm 22 makes it clear that lament... Lament is legitimate, it is good, it is even necessary, but thankfully it is not uninterrupted darkness. There is light that pierces the darkness. For example, verse 1 of chapter 22, how does David start? He starts with a simple word that tells us something significant. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No matter how forsaken he felt in that moment, there was this little light burst of faith. This God who I think has forsaken me is still my God. He's still mine. There's light there. There's light there. Or you go down to verses 3 and 4. You... Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, in you they trusted and were not put to shame. So here's David, little light burst, coming into his his sorrow-darkened heart. He, He is reminded of the character of God. You are holy, O Lord. He is reminded of the exalted place of God. You are enthroned, O Lord. He is reminded of the past faithfulness of God. You rescued our fathers, our parents, our grandparents when they cried, Lord, you rescued. Here are light bursts that are coming through the darkness into his soul. It happens, doesn't it, in grief? We think we're sinking and then all of a sudden there's just this little ray of light a little ray of light, it comes in so many different ways. I remember a number of years ago, back in 2005, I think it was, yes, my dad had died on Christmas Day and um, so our whole family gathered up in New Hampshire to mourn and remember dad and Simultaneously with that, just a year before, our son had had cancer and almost died. And my mom had cancer at the time. My dad died and was dying, and we lost her a few months later. Other circumstances going on that were dark and hard and difficult. We're with the family, and we're mourning, and we're grieving. And at the end of that week, we're getting ready to to head home from New Hampshire down to New Jersey and we look for our car keys and they're nowhere to be found. And and uh this was during the holiday season, so there was just no way to get keys mailed to us. I mean, we were just we were just there in New Hampshire, couldn't find the keys, couldn't find the keys, tried to figure out where did these keys go. And uh and we remembered that uh Gaylene had taken a walk the night before. It was the week after December in New Hampshire, taking a walk around a very large block, you know, blocks in New Hampshire, about a mile around, okay? Uh, She had taken this walk, and, and while out on the walk, had slipped and fallen. And it hit her that day as we were getting ready to leave. Did the keys fall out of my pocket? Problem was that six inches plus of snow had fallen that night. So we didn't know where exactly. Had general idea where she had fallen. We, didn't, had, we had no idea where the keys were. Uh, and not only had the snow fallen, but it had been plowed. And so we, we walk around, and we, we're looking, and we're looking, and we're looking. And we walk up to the spot where she had fallen. And there, sticking out of the snow, was the tip of a car key. And we're like, are you serious? That was a light burst in the midst of the darkness. That was a reminder to us. Our God cares. Our God cares. It comes in many different forms. But they always come. They always come. If you're in grief, if it feels like you're being hemmed in and there's no escape and the darkness is thickening, oh, I'm here to tell you, based on the promises of God and his word and the experience of God's people for thousands of years, the light burst come and there will be moments either when the spirit of God just speaks it to your soul or through some word from another person brother or friend or through some stunning act of kindness like keys found in a snowbank, that you will be reminded of the faithfulness of your God. And you will be reminded that though you cannot see him and do not feel him, he is there. He is there. David, in the midst of the darkness, experienced this light burst and, and they go on in different forms throughout, uh, throughout the psalm. In verses 9 and 10, he says to the Lord, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from birth, and from my mother's womb, you have been my God. David, David is reminded in his grief He's reminded that God had given him the gift of faith from his youngest days. He was was reminded that God had created in him a trust. and He recalled this gift of faith. He recalled this trust. And it was a light burst into his soul. This is what God does. Grief is, is never consistent and neat. You can be sinking and then all of a sudden lifted. You can be rising and all of a sudden sink. But you can be sure of this, that no matter how dark it is, it is never so dark, as I have said often, that there is no light. It is never so dark that there aren't rays of light from heaven piercing the darkness to find your heart, to find your faith. So we've seen the darkness that leads to lament. We see the light bursts that interrupt our lament. And then we see the dawn that follows our lament. Look at, at verses 20 and 21. Look at verses 20 and 21. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of, of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. There is this sudden burst of hope. It is is almost astonishing to read the text for, what, 20 verses? It is this, this, this flood of grief, this flood of lament. And then all of a sudden he says, Lord, you've rescued me. You've rescued me. Not sure how this happened? But hope dawned. All of a sudden it was there. I don't know if it was a word from God to his soul. I don't know if it was a movement of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if it was a sudden delayed reaction, awakening of hope based on some of those light bursts that he had had earlier. Who knows? But all of a sudden, hope dawns. It's restored. And it changed his whole perspective. So that in verse 22, he says, I'm going to tell of your name to my brothers, and in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. He's turning from despair to praise, just like that. He's turning from feeling all alone to now saying, I'm going to be with your people, I'm going to be with my brothers, I'm going to be in the congregation, and I'm going to praise you. And then he goes on It says in verse 26, I'm going to be satisfied in your presence. He says in verses 27 through 29, not only am I going to be happy and your people be happy, but all the nations, all the families of the earth are going to be a part of this. So his perspective has changed completely from despair to, to glorious hope. Hope is dawned. My friends... Take God at his word. Your sorrows will end. They will end. I don't know when. I don't know how. I don't know if it will be in this life. But they will end. Hope is. At the end of the night, weeping may last for the nighttime, but joy will come in the morning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Those who sow in tears will reap in joy. Dawn is coming, no matter how dark it is. Dawn is on the way no matter how thick the darkness is no matter how long the darkness lasts no matter how you can almost taste and feel the darkness that it's so thick dawn is approaching there is always a dawn as surely as there has been a morning after every night time since the beginning of creation there will be a morning for each and every one of the people of god there will be dawn there will be. There will be for you. What are you facing? What are you feeling? How dark has it gotten? Morning is coming. Morning is coming. Don't give up. Dawn is going to break. You say, well, how do we know that? We know that because there was... One lament to end all other laments. There was one person who suffered to put an end to all suffering. It is very important that we understand that this psalm is not just about David. It is about David, but not just about David. Peter says something fascinating in in 1 Peter. He, He talks about how the prophets of the Old Testament would write things, and then they would search into the things that they were writing to try to figure out who they were writing about. They were writing things often about themselves, but then as they began to write, and the things came through their quill onto the parchment they realize that this isn't really about me anymore. And Peter says that's because the Holy Spirit was carrying them along to talk and predict and prophesy about the Christ, about the Savior. You know, we look at David's life and he had a lot of sufferings, but the kind of thing that he describes here in Psalm 22 goes way beyond anything that we read about anywhere else in the Bible about David. I wonder at what point... As he wrote Psalm 22, did he think, hmm, I'm writing things here that I don't even fully identify. I wonder who this is about. Well, the New Testament makes it clear that what Psalm 22 is ultimately about is the ultimate sufferer, the Lord Jesus Christ, who on the cross said, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And as you read Psalm 22, friends, you're reading a description, an exquisite detailed description of the sufferings and agonies of crucifixion. Even though crucifixion as a form of execution hadn't even been invented yet when David wrote this. Some 500 years later. So here's David describing a suffering and a sufferer that parallels in in horrific detail the experience of crucifixion. And then a thousand years after, David, there comes a man whose name is Jesus. And he carries a cross on his shoulders up a hill called Calvary. And there they pierced his hands and his feet. And they encompassed him like wild animals and they taunted him and said, where is your God now? And he was thirsty and his heart melted with thirst and his bones were out of joint. And They blasphemed him and they stripped him naked and they gambled over his clothes. And so we realize that while David suffered and we suffer, there is one who suffered the most. And this one, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if, if the father had answered in that moment, the father would have said something like this, my son, my son, I have forsaken you in this moment. You see, Jesus was not just feeling forsaken. He was forsaken. The father had turned his back on his son and poured out his wrath on his son. And the father would say, My son, this is because before the world was made, we decided we wanted people to be our own. We wanted to extend Our divine family love from the Father, Son, and Spirit to countless human beings. But those human beings would be sinners, guilty before us, and their sin would deserve our wrath and our judgment. But in our love, we remembered mercy and compassion. And so, my son, we decided that this was the way. That we would redeem them from their sins. We would pay the price for their sins. We would atone for their sins. We would take and carry their sins and their sorrows far, far away. You would bear them in your own body on the cross. You would suffer so that they would not have to suffer anymore. And this is the lament to end all other laments. This is God saying, I am suffering with you and I am suffering for you. I am suffering in your place so that the day will come when Jesus will join you in the congregation of The brothers singing the praises of God. The day will come when all the nations will bow down. Not before King David, but before David's son, Jesus Christ. The day is going to come when sorrow will be no more. The day is going to come when glory will prevail. The day is going to come when tears are no more. The day is going to come when suffering ends. No more lamentations. No more tears. No more grief. Oh. Oh, what a Savior we have. And what hope we have. We need to learn to lament. We do. Don't fake it. We need to learn to lament. We need to learn to lament in hope. Until, because of Jesus, lamentation is no. Here is our God. This is why we need the Psalms. This is why you need the Psalms. You need to be in them often. You need to be in them deep. Because they will speak what's in your soul. And turn you loose. To express. All the joys. And all the sorrows. All the hope. And all the grief. That are a part of living in the real world with real authenticity until he comes. And so it is entirely fitting that we close both by singing and by sharing communion with each other. I'm forgiven because he was forsaken. I'm accepted because he was condemned. Going to ask the ushers to begin to get ready to distribute the elements. And as they do, uh, let's begin to sing how deep the Father's love for us.